was great, great worship. And as our other campuses and venues join us right now for our time in the Word, does anybody know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to pray. So why don't you guys join me? Father, I can't imagine for me ever opening up your book, ever talking about your holy word without first uh, focusing my heart and mind upon you, humbling myself before you, and asking your richest spirit-filled blessing upon this time. God, what comforts me is that for thousands of years now, followers of your son Jesus have engaged in weekly, even more regularly, worship. And when they've done so, they've opened up your book and asked your Holy Spirit to illuminate and guide them in their understanding, and you have. And so, God, we do that here right now today. We're talking about your grace. And God, as you know, I could talk about that till the return of Jesus, and I probably will, because your grace, as we're going to see today, changes everything. And so as we look at, at numerous parts of your holy word, God, speak to us, open our hearts and our minds to the things that you are about And I pray that you would change us from the inside out into the image of Jesus, our Savior, your Son, in whose name we pray and we say together, amen. So I want to begin this morning by sharing with you three core things that are true about who God is. And I'm going to warn you right now that before I give you these three things, and I'm going to do so in about 30 seconds, that these are three things about God that most, if not many people, resist about God. They are sides to God that you and I know in our hearts and even experience when we reach out to God, but they are kind of the not-so-fun sides to God. But they are very much a part of who God is. And we're, after we cement these things, we're then going to take a look at what God does when he injects grace into the equation. But first, let's cement some things that the Bible says about who God is. And I'll give you these three things right up front. The Bible makes it really clear that God is a righteous judge, that at times he is a stern father, and that he is a transcendent creator. If you don't know what all these mean, that's okay. In about the next 10 minutes, you will. He's a righteous judge, a stern father at times, and a transcendent creator. Now, as the title of our message goes today, we're going to talk about how grace changes everything. We'll see how that works in a few minutes. But before we do that, we need to understand very clearly these things that the Bible absolutely affirms about the character and work of God on planet earth. So let's pause and park for a few minutes in front of these. First, consider the fact that God is a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge. Here's the deal. Almost all of us know this to be true about God. We understand that because he's God, he has a moral standard of right and wrong, and that he has made the universe this way, and that he expects you and me as his creation to follow his moral standard in our lives, and when that standard is breached, God says judgment comes in. He makes a moral judgment on our lives and morality. This is a clear truism about who God is. If you don't believe me, and I think you do, just look at how the New Testament puts this in probably one of the most famous passages in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Being very succinct and to the point, it says this, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. 
I know, kind of sobering, but it's pretty clear here. Someday, all of us are going to die. I hope you knew that when you walked in here today. Hopefully not soon, but it's going to happen to all of us. (laughs) Billy Graham, when he was alive, once said that death is the most democratic experience in life because we're all going to get a chance to participate. And he's right. Someday we're going to die. And the Bible says that when we do, it's judgment time before God. We're going to give an account for the life that we lived and whether we lived up to God's standards or not. The famous trial lawyer, Edward Bennett Williams, on his deathbed was being teased by one of his friends about all the power and influence he had when he was in Washington during his career. And as he was dying, the story is told that he looked at his friend and he said, power, I'm about to meet real power. What did Williams understand about God? He understood that God is a righteous judge. And though most of us don't like this aspect of God, I mean, it makes us kind of uncomfortable and we squirm in our seat when we think about how nitpicky God is about morality and the fact that he's going to judge our lives. Think about it maybe this way. At the end of the day, when we can stop squirming in our seat, we realize that we actually agree with God on his standards of justice. If you and I were having a cup of coffee and I said to you today, hey, tell me what you think's wrong with the world or culture today. You would fill my boots with all these things that you think is wrong with our society today. And almost every one of them would go back to this issue of justice. We feel scandalized when the good does not come through and we want to champion what is right and we truly do want to live up to God's standards. All of us do. It's just that we obviously fall short. So I like how Martin Luther King Jr. said it when he was alive. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And you and I agree with that. We agree with God's justice and judgment. It's just that we squirm when we're on the receiving end of it. God's a righteous judge. We're going to see how grace changes that in a few minutes or at least completes it. But just understand that this is an aspect of who God is. Now, if you thought that one was hard, I will warn you. The second one, in my opinion, is even harder. Because the second thing that the Bible affirms about God is that at times, and quite frankly, more times than we would like to admit, he is a stern father. And by stern, let's be clear, I mean strict and demanding. Let me show you what I mean. Through a hand raise, let me ask you, how many of you have ever heard a Christian or a pastor say something to this effect? Hey, The Bible's not filled with just a bunch of do's and don'ts. You ever heard a Christian say that? Most of us have. We're trying to kind of soften things and put people off or get people off, not take them off guard and make them feel more comfortable with who God is. Here's the problem with that line of thinking. Though it is true that the Bible contains more than just a bunch of do's and don'ts, (laughs) I've read the book. And there's still an awful lot of do's and don'ts in the Bible. Years ago, I I wanted to finally cement this so that we'd stop bickering about it. So I did an exhaustive study on the phrase, do not, in the Bible. 
I looked up every time the Bible says do not followed with something like that we should do not. Here's what I found. The Bible says do not over 400 times in the New Testament alone. And that's the testament of grace. That's the one that's kind of being softer on us, if you will. When I did a study of the Old Testament, I found that the phrase do not appears 900 plus times. So do the math. 900 plus 400 carry the one is 1,300 times that the Bible says do not. Don't tell me that God is not at times strict when it comes to his expectations on our lives, issuing tough warnings and commands that he expects us to obey. So God's a righteous judge. He's a stern father at times. And then thirdly, notice that God is a transcendent creator. He's a transcendent creator. Now, what do I mean by transcendent? One of the things I did over Christmas break, the reason I was gone for two weeks, is that I'm uh, writing another book. Uh, my first book did pretty well, and I signed a two-book contract three years ago with Baker Bookhouse, and so I've been working on a second book, and you guys are going to love it. It's a book on navigating divine distance out of the book of Esther. And I'm doing a lot more than we did even when we, uh, I preached out of Esther last year. And one of the things that I did over Christmas is wrote the first couple of chapters. And I talk about why God feels so distant at times. And I write a bit about this idea of the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God, or the word transcendence is defined this way. It's being beyond comprehension. It's outside of material existence. It's extending beyond the ordinary experience. You get the idea. Transcendence means that God, or whatever you're talking about, transcends us, is up here and you and I are down here. Give me a head nod, you understand that. So the whole nature of transcending means rising above. And what the Bible makes really clear, and this is a good thing, is that God transcends you and I. He transcends the material universe. He transcends our experience. It's just that that's gonna create feelings of distance at times, if not many times, in our walk with him. Now, let me show you how Bible makes this really clear. In Psalm 11, verse 4, you got to love this passage. It says, the Lord's throne is in heaven. You know what I love about that passage? It's really clear. His throne ain't here, right? It's not here. He, he's not in Scottsdale. He's not in Washington. He's not with the Dalai Lama in Tibet. God has not made his throne on planet Earth. And it's not on the moon or at Mars either. His throne is in heaven, whereas when you study the Bible, it tells us that that is a spiritual realm outside of material existence. That's where God resides. And it's not that he doesn't break into this world. We'll see that in a minute. Because of his grace, he will. But by his nature, he is transcendent from his creation. And then, is that, that were not enough, look at Isaiah 55. God is speaking. And he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, <laughs> nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I don't know about you, but sounds like God's trying to say, hey, I'm up here and you're down there. 
and I feel very, and I function very differently than you do. And folks, that's why we experience distance from him. Let me ask you a question, and, and don't raise your hand to this one, just answer it to yourself. Have you ever had an experience where God feels very far away from you? <laughs> Have you ever had an experience as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, where it feels like he's almost hiding himself from you? I don't think we want to admit that, but maybe we should start doing that, because that's the premise of my book, that there are plenty of times where if Christians would finally get honest with themselves, they experience that aspect of God. Years ago, when I was doing the study on the do-nots, I also did a study on this idea of God hiding his face from us. Did you know that in the Psalms, which are prayers to God, over 10 times in 10 different Psalms, that's a lot, the psalmist says, God, why are you hiding from me? I'm gonna string together just these psalms right now without putting each one up on the monitor and reading the text of it all. I'm just gonna string together all the different psalms and what the psalmist says about his experience with God and just let it soak in and see if you can at all resonate with this. But why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Do not hide your face from me. Oh Lord, you did hide your face and I was dismayed. Why did you hide your face? Oh Lord, why did you reject my soul? Why did you hide your face from me? How long, oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. You did hide your face and I am dismayed. Answer me quickly, oh Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me. <laughs> wow. Ten times in the Psalms, they have this complaint, if you will, against God, that in their experience, he seems very distant, very transcendent. And here's what we need to wrestle with. Theologians for years sometimes try to weasel out of this by saying, well, that's just the psalmist's perspective, right? I mean, that's just what they're you know, imagining or experiencing about God. It's not really real. Or they say, we know the psalmist must have been sinning at that time. You know, I mean, he just must have had sin in his life and that created the distance. Here's the problem with that. When you look at the context of some of those psalms, and then I'm gonna show you another passage here in a minute, it is not about perspective and it's not about sin. It's the reality that God at times feels distant. And I'm here to tell you today, it's because he's transcendent. <laughs> his ways are not your ways. And there is times where we feel the distance of his holiness from our humanity. You know what the, the coup d'etat of this is? Kind of the nail in the coffin is Job. You guys remember Job. Job was a, a very righteous man and, and, and he never spoke ill of anybody else and God had nothing really against him. And then some terrible things happened to him. And then even in the terrible things that happened to him, he did not sin at all. He did not complain against God. And then more terrible things happened to him. And then he still remained very faithful, the Bible tells us. And then there are 37 chapters. After the first three chapters, when all these things happened to Job, 37 chapters of absolute silence from God. Read the book sometime. I mean, after the opening salvo, Job and his three friends are trying to figure out why all these things happened to him. Again, is there sin in his life? Is this just Job's perspective and all of this? No, God is distant from him for 37 chapters as he tries to figure all of this out. 
And about a third of the way through these 37 chapters, Job pulls a psalm move on us. And echoing the psalms, he says to God, why do you hide your face from me? And it's amazing because we're going to see what grace does in a minute. God eventually does show up on the scene. And you know what he says to Job? Stop talking so much. I'm about ready to say something to you and reveal myself to you. I'm going to draw close, but I'm not sure you're going to like it. Uh, because you're kind of a whiner, Job, and there's some things I need you to understand about my character. Here's the point. There are times that God can seem, and in very much is, distant from our souls. It's okay. Prayers don't get answered all that quickly. Bible reading can get dry. Service can become weighty, and fellowship's a drag. We've all been there. And and I'm going to write more about this in the future months and years. But simply note today that part of that is just the fact that God is transcendent. So three aspects of God that are true but not necessarily fun. He's a righteous judge. He's a stern father at times. He's a transcendent creator. The Bible affirms these things about God. They are true. Now, listen very closely because what I'm about to say is extremely important. If a follower of Jesus stops here and only focuses in their lives on the righteous judgments of God and his fatherly sternness and his transcendent nature, then they will miss out on the fullness of who God is in all of his grace. And I can't tell you how many well-meaning Christ followers I have known over the years, even me at times, even many in our church that are in that place. We've read the Bible and we are kind of black and white people and we don't like the world around us. And so we go, man, that judgment is coming and that judgment's going to come soon and y'all better look out. And God is not happy with the morality of our culture. Don't I imitate this well, by the way? And God is not happy with the morality of our culture. And he is right down mad. And guess what? He's not very close to us. And America deserves that. And even many in the church deserve that. In other words, we pine away about this righteousness of God and the sternness of God and the transcendence of God. And again, we're not wrong for doing that. Don't tell people that they are unbiblical for doing that. Here's the problem. They're just not thoroughly biblical. They're not completely biblical. As Paul Harvey would have said, and now for the rest of the story. Because God doesn't stop with his righteous judgments. He does not stop with his sternness. He does not stop with his transcendence. What God does, picture this, is inject grace into the equation. And when he does, that grace changes everything. We're going to spend the rest of our time today looking at how grace changes or completes, might be a better word, these aspects of how God deals with us. And it should blow your mind. I hope it does. So first, let's talk about the reality that God is a righteous judge. And here's what happens when grace comes in. A righteous judge who decides to show grace becomes a merciful judge. Man, the Bible's going to scream this to us. A righteous judge who injects grace into his righteous judgments decides 
to have mercy. I want you to look with me at what Romans chapter 5, verse 16 says happens when God decides to apply grace, now watch this, to his justice and still maintains his justice but can now show us mercy. Look what happens, Romans 5, 16. It says, and the gift, which by the way is Christ's death on our behalf, so the gift is Jesus given to us, is not like that which came through the one who sinned. The one who sinned is Adam, and by extension, you and I. For for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, Adam's sin, resulting in condemnation, But on the other hand, here it is, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Now, here's the word you need to focus on right now. And it's that end word there, justification. That word 2,000 years ago was a legal term, kind of like it is today. It was a term used in a court of law. That if you were accused of something, a crime, you'd go into a court of law, and if you were found not guilty, you would be justified, right, uh, by the accusation against you, and you would be set free. But what happens if you're actually guilty (laughs) of what they're accusing you about? Then you would not be justified. You'd go to jail. And the scandal of the gospel of Jesus, now let this sink in, because when they used this word back then, it really hit them between the eyes, is that we have this humanity that is obviously guilty before God. That's why we squirm when we hear that he's a righteous judge. We're guilty. And yet we enter the courtroom knowing that we have no defense at all. And God declares us not guilty. He justifies us, but not because we somehow changed. It's because we embraced Jesus, who was the one given as the penalty for our sins. And so that's what it means when it says the free gift, which again, we've already cemented as Jesus, arose from many transgressions resulting in our justification. And so in Christ, God declares you and me not guilty, but watch this. He still retains being a righteous judge because a penalty was paid and it was the penalty that Jesus paid on our behalf. And that's why God can now say, even if in the midst of your still struggling with sin, I can choose mercy over judgment. That James would like this so much that he would say it that simply. He would say in his epistle, mercy triumphs over judgment because that's the gospel. Mercy wins the day when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ because God decides to show us forgiveness when we are most unforgivable. And so though we still squirm at times when we hear that God is a righteous judge, For those who have embraced Jesus, if you've embraced Jesus here today, even if you're still battling sin and struggling in your spirit, take heart because God now looks upon you with mercy and that mercy is going to triumph over judgment. Elisa Morgan is the founder of MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers, which is a program we have here at our church. And uh, I like how she said it years ago. She says, God who sees us in our worst moments, does not measure us by them. 
Aren't you glad about that? He doesn't measure you by your worst moments. He measures you by his love for you and the grace he has shown you in Jesus. Uh, Martin Marty, kind of on the opposite end of the uh, spectrum, was a, an academician at the University of Chicago. And at one point in his career, Martin Marty said this. I love this quote. He says, it takes more doing for a holy God to forgive an errant person than it does to part the waters of the sea. Think about that. We tend to brag about what God does, right? Like, hey, he parted the sea. You know, he rose somebody from the dead and all this. Martin Marty says, yeah, big whip. It takes a lot more power and grace on God's part to forgive your pathetic soul than it does to part the waters of the sea. And it's true. God has given you grace. He has shown you mercy. And that's the greatest gift he could ever give to you, me, and all of humanity. And so before we move on, I just need to ask you, how do you experience God? Are you one of these people walking around always talking about the righteousness of God and his sternness and all of that, which again is in the Bible, or are you going to trumpet how grace is now in the equation and all the people around you who are living in fear can receive his mercy to you and his mercy from God in their lives? How do you experience God? And are you beginning to see why I say that his grace changes everything? Now, if you like that first one, I think you're really going to like this second one. Because the second way that grace changes everything has to do with this idea of God's sternness. And this one is, I'm still in journey on because this is a hard one for me to get and you'll see why here in a minute. Uh, But what the Bible tells us is that when a stern father decides to show grace, he he, he says, don't call me stern, call me Abba Father. A, A stern father becomes Abba Father. In other words, though the imperatives don't change. Did you hear me say that? I mean, they're still in here in the Bible. How many do nots are there? 1,300. They're still in the Bible and God still wants us to do not. But when we understand them in light of God's amazing and unconditional grace in Jesus, I'm telling you, they all of a sudden take on a new meaning when they come from a heart of a father who loves you and says, call me Abba. And some of you are saying, what's this Abba thing about? Like, is that that band from the 1970s? No, it's not. Has nothing to do with that. I want you to look at what the Bible says to us, and I just want to let you know about this verse. It's talking to Christians here. It's not talking to all of humanity. It's talking to those of us who have come to faith in Jesus and now want to follow God through Jesus. Look at what it says to us. I love this verse in Romans 8, verses 15 to 17. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, meaning before you were saved, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, here it is, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I put it there in yellow so you won't miss it. Simply notice that when you got saved, when you come to believe in Jesus, God says, this is this cool, he now has adopted you into his family. And you are now his child. This is why I've said before, and our world doesn't get this. You've heard people say on the news or or on a talk show or whatever, hey, we know we're all children of God. (laughs) 
I wouldn't make a big deal of that, but technically speaking, that's not true. The Bible says that all of humanity is loved by God and that all of humanity uh, is created by God and he wants them to come home to him. But the Bible further says that all of humanity is fallen and separated from God and, and, and at best are like runaway kids and they're no longer his children. They're his creations beloved by him, but him beckoning them home. And when you come home to God through Jesus, he says, now I've adopted you back into my family. You're now my child. Now here it is. And that as my child, you can call me Abba. You can call me Abba. Now why is that important? A quick history lesson. Some of you might know this. Some of you might not. The uh, New Testament was written in Greek. It was the language that most wrote in back in that Greco-Roman culture. And uh, the Greek word for father is pater, P-A-T-E-R. And it's a very formal address for father, just like the English word father is. I mean, some of you use the word father, but it's rather formal, formal, right? You know, hello, father. It's good to see you today, father. This is my father. I mean, it's just formal by the very nature of it. But back 2,000 years ago, though they wrote in Greek, they spoke mainly in another language called Aramaic. And in Aramaic, there was an address for father that was much more informal, more intimate. It was the address of a child to their father. And it was the Aramaic word Abba. I like how one Bible expert says it. He says, and I quote, it denotes childlike intimacy and trust. Theologians today are trying to figure out what would be a good English equivalent and all of them fall short, but it might be something like daddy. Or Larry Crabb argues it's papa. So whatever intimate term you might have for your father that would denote more childlike intimacy and trust, that you are safe in your father's arms, that's what Abba means. And so maybe now you can see that when God says, yeah, there are times that I'm stern, and I care deeply about your morality and the righteousness of your life, but I know you're going to fall short. I know you need forgiveness. I know you need grace. And so I'm going to lavish it on you. And because I have, you may now call me Abba. You may now realize how much I love you and how much grace I have reserved for you. And again, as Paul says in Romans, we now cry out, Abba, Father. I said to you earlier that I, uh, I, I struggle with this. It will not surprise any of you as to why. I will not go into a therapy session with you right now, but I've told you guys a thousand times that I did not have the best relationship with my dad growing up. And, and, and I've stopped blaming him. I'm 56 years old for crying out loud. It's time to grow up. And, and, and yet it's true. My dad and I have talked about it a lot over the years. He, he, he once said it this way. He said, you and I never got along since you were three. Uh, when, when Tom Schrader was alive, he said, that's classic, put the onus on a three-year-old. But I've never said that to my dad. But, but, but that's, that's the relationship I have with my dad. And, and, and he never said, I love you. He didn't hug me. He never touched me. My dad never hit me. He never hugged me. And, and so it made it a little bit difficult coming into my adult years, especially, and this is why I tell you all of this, when I got saved and then people said, hey, God is your father, because my image of father, though I respected my dad and I loved my dad and my dad's, you know, was very stern and his rule was the rule, that's how I thought of father. And here's what made it hard, and some of you are there. I've been a Christian now for 40 years, and I know 
that he's my Abba. And I know that his grace is upon me. But sometimes it's hard to get what you know into what you experience. Amen? Somebody said to me the other day, and they nailed it. They said, I think the reason that you like talking about grace so much is because you need it so much. (laughs) And I said, amen. I don't mind owning that at all. I, I read about grace, and in my, my, my more tender times, I just start to cry in my office. And they aren't tears of sadness. They're tears like this, and some of you can relate. Could it be that good? Could it be that God loves me that much? Could it be that he really, in my worst moments, doesn't measure me by them, but says, call me Abba? Because that's so foreign to my human experience. There's very few people, if anybody, that would love me that way. Chuck Swindoll in his book, The Great Awaken, or The Grace Awakening, nails it. And he says, when you finally get to the point where you start to think about grace and you say, there's no way it could be that good. There's no way that God could be that way. Swindoll says, you're now just starting to get it. He calls it the scandal of grace. And he says, until you've been scandalized by it, you don't really get it. And at least for me, this idea of Abba, and I'm still on a journey, but it's a good journey, is amazingly scandalous to me to think that even though I don't deserve it, he says, I show mercy, call me Abba. So add it all up. You got a righteous judge because he gives grace, becomes a merciful judge. You got a stern father who rightly dispenses warnings and commands, but then he says, call me Abba, because of his grace. And then notice with me a third and final way that God's grace changes everything. And that is that a transcendent creator in which we feel very distant from him at times decides to show us grace. Now watch this and says, I want to be your intimate maker. In other words, forget about maybe the words of these. He simply wants to draw close and help you in your life. And again, some of you go, well, duh, that's a no-brainer. Do you know how many people in this world do not believe that about God? When I first became a Christian back uh, in the very early 1980s, my, uh, my, my, my dad, who's again a wonderful man, but doesn't at least at that time share my evangelical views. I'll never forget this one day. My dad's very intellectual. One day he, he said to me, he said, well, Jamie, I guess you now believe that God is an interventionist God. And I remember thinking, I'll have to get back to you. And you know, go to the, you know, let me see, dictionary, I, interventionist. You know, I didn't even know what that meant. Come to find out that what my dad believed most of his life, and I think he's coming out of it now, was very popular in academic circles. It's called deism. And deism believes in God, and they believe that God created this world, but they so believe that he is transcendent that picture it this way. He just sort of, you know, billions of years ago started the ball rolling with the Big Bang and has sort of taken a step back. And deism believes that he never intervenes in the affairs of the world. And in that sense, he is not knowable. You cannot experience him. You can believe in him, but it won't do you any good except for maybe what faith does for your own, you know, personhood. And so when my dad said, now you believe in an interventionist God after I understood what he meant, you know what I said? You bet, because he's intervened in my life and he has saved me. 
And on a regular basis, he breaks in, even though he feels distant at times, and he helps me when I need him. Look at how the author of Hebrews would be so clear on this. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Why? Because we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and we can receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't tell me that God doesn't intervene in our lives. He wants to break through when you need him the most and he wants to help you the transcendent creator, because he shows you grace, wants to become the intimate maker of your life and break through into your everyday world. And again, I know the pushback here. I've been doing it a long time. Some of you right now are sitting like this, maybe not with your arms, but you are. You're, you're in your heart going, yeah, but you know what? I've asked for his help and, and it ain't coming. And I've been asking a lot and it's not coming. What do you do then, Jamie? Well, I, I've been there. You know what you do? You stay in the ring with God, amen? In other words, you're on the ropes, you feel like you're getting pounded by Satan. Here's what some people do, they get out of the ring, right? And they throw in the white towel and they say, I quit. Well, that's probably not the best thing to do. No, Richard, you and I know that when you're against the ropes and you're getting beat up by Satan, man, just put your fists up, get those body blocks down. And guess what? The psalmist said, though there is weeping in the night, there is joy in the morning. Hang in there. God is good for it. And some of us have had to hang in there for a very long time. But his promises are his promises. We draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And he's going to help in time of need. The transcendent creator will bridge the gap. That's why Jesus came. And he will come through again. And this brings us to my concluding thought today. And it's really the whole point of today, and it's the whole point of this series, and it's going to challenge some of you greatly, but we need to say it, and it's this, that I'm convinced that you can't really know God without knowing his grace. That's what I've been trying to communicate to you today. We got a lot of Christians walking around today, as I said earlier, that know certain things about God. They even believe in Jesus. They talk a big game on the grace that came to us in Jesus but when I hear them talk, they talk more about his sternness. They talk more about his righteous judgment. They talk more about his holiness and transcendence. And again, I don't want to be misunderstood. I want no emails this week. All those things are true about God. Amen? They're not the complete truth about God. And until you know his grace, you don't really know him. Until his righteousness for you and those around you becomes mercy, you don't know him. Until his sternness becomes Abba, you don't know him. And until his transcendence becomes intimate, you don't know him. And my fear is, is we have a lot of Christians who don't know him. When they hear Jamie say that I'm going to do a series on grace, they go, oh man, what's after that? I mean, tell me what the next series is. And I want to scream because I'm tempted to talk on grace all year until you throw up. That's what I'm tempted to do. Because, and, yeah, amen. Until we get it, until we understand that we're going to spend the rest of our life plummeting the depths of his grace, and even then you're going to get to heaven and go, whoa, I didn't understand even a percent of it. 
until we understand our need for his grace, you don't really know him. But here's the good news, last thought. But when you do start to get excited about his grace, even when you don't experience it yet, even when you're like me sometimes in my office, just tears in your eyes at the thought of it. <laughs> but knowing that it's coming down the pike. Remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Future grace, it's there for you. Once you get there, you're well on your way to truly knowing him and what a father's heart is about. He loves you. I know he does. And he wants you to find your satisfaction, your joy in him. And it all goes back to his grace. Grace changes everything and it can change you. Father, thank you for your word and how page after page, like a broken record, repeats the same tune. It talks about your grace. Lord, this is why the reformers talked about the doctrines of grace. This is why Paul began every letter saying grace and peace to you. This is why John said Jesus came to us full of grace and it's grace upon grace. We can't get enough of it. And Lord, some of us are beat up and on the ropes and we need grace. And so Lord, today, may we recognize that you are a righteous judge, but you in Jesus have shown us mercy. May we recognize that there's a lot of sternness in the Bible because you, you are righteous, but you've decided to let us call you and experience you as Abba. And Father, there's a transcendent aspect to your nature. We'd want it no other way because you are wholly other than us. The creator is different than the creation. And yet, Lord, you break through, you intervene, and you become our intimate maker. God, may we experience that. May your grace be lavished upon each and every one of us. And may we deflect all glory and praise to you. In Jesus' name I pray. We all say together, amen. amen.